Good morning and a warm welcome to all of you this morning. Uh, I'm Tom Nelson and uh, just uh, delighted you're here on this beautiful day. And I guess we need to say go Chiefs, right, this morning? We'll, we'll uh, hope for a good outcome today, huh? Absolutely. Well, if I were to ask you, what is the greatest peril any individual or organization may ever face, what first comes to your mind? A lot of things may come to your mind about the greatest peril, but I want to suggest to you that Simon Sinek answers this question by saying it is a perilous, fuzzy why. That is, when the big why of what we do gets lost in the details of what we do. In his best-selling book, Start With Why, Simon Sinek says these words. We have that up there. By why I mean... What is your purpose, cause, or belief? Why does your company exist? Why do you get out of bed every morning? And why should anyone care? Now, I don't know if Simon Sinek is a follower of Jesus. I don't know his faith or worldview or the story he lives in. But he is saying something really important to us. Simon's big why idea applies to every person and every organization, every institution, and yes, every church. Did you catch what Simon Sinek is saying? He is saying it is not what you do or even how you do it that matters most. It is why. It is always why. Now, the Swiss psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, who is a Holocaust survivor and who, as an Orthodox Jewish person, understood the Old Testament, points out this same truth. And Frankl says in his brilliant book, in Search, Man's Search for Meaning, he says, if a person has a compelling why to live, they can face any what that life throws at them. See, why and hope are inextricably linked. Franco understood that when our why gets fuzzy, our hope fades. And when hope fades in our life, everything else fades with it. See, hope is to our hearts what oxygen is to our bodies. We can't live long without it. The big why and true hope are inextricably tied together. So having great clarity in the why, the big why, is crucial for us. Now whether you are exploring the Christian faith or you've been in church a long time, each one of us faces a similar peril. It's the peril of the big why. The peril of a fuzzy why as it relates to individuals or also as a local church. I'm often asked the questions that have changed over the years. And I have to say that in 20 years, if I were to look at 20 years of our American culture and my experience in it as a pastor, 20 years ago, the first and most important question that I encountered with people of faith and non-faith and all in between was the question, Tom, why God? Why God? I don't get it in a rationalistic scientific world. Why God? But the question has changed in 20 years. The most common question I get from people of faith, non-faith, whatever 
background is the question, why church? I don't get it. Why the church? Now, most likely there are several reasons for this, and I don't want to be simplistic here, but I would suggest there are many. For example, there are times that the church fails, right? We may have a hurtful or disappointing experience of a church, and when we are disappointed, disillusioned, discouraged, hope goes with it, and the why becomes fuzzy. Sometimes when we look at the world, isn't it true, in our nation and what's going on in our culture, and we see it, we say, there are a lot of churches around that don't seem to be making any difference. And for some of us, the church maybe we didn't grow up there, may be unfamiliar to us. So the question, why church? We never really thought about it. So in the next three weeks, we are going to have what I hope is a very invigorating series, and we are going to probe the question, why church? And let me just say right up front that from every neuron I have, I was almost going to say moron, I might be that too, (laughs) every fiber of my being, I believe this. The answer to the question, I believe, of why church is this. I believe the local church as God designed it is the hope of the world, period. That's a big statement. You go, whoa, strong assertion. And I believe that because there is nowhere else in the world I can see hope like there is in the church. There's true hope here. And it's not, you know, you may say, whoa, you know. It's not because people in the church are always the best behaved, including pastors. It's not that people in the church are the best looking. Well, this might be an exceptional group. (laughs) Or the smartest. It is because the church has the best story. Think about this, something that began over 2,000 years ago in a remote little section of the Roman Empire has spread throughout the globe in 2,000 years. And it is the story of stories. It is embedded in time and space history. It is true. It is brimming with great hope. And yes, I'll give you, there are many stories in the world, many philosophies of life. But I want to suggest to you that while the Christian story is not unassailable, it's clearly not. There are other things to think about. And it can be questioned. But I want to suggest to you, while it's not unassailable, it's unsurpassable. So in this three weeks, we are going to discover the Christian story and how it tells us three things in these three sequential messages. First, today, there is hope for me. Next week, there is hope for us. And the week following, there is hope for all. Hope for me, hope for us, and hope for all. So, let's dive into this morning's message. You with me? Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2 in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians. And here in the first 10 verses, we're going to explore three, three compelling reasons why there is hope here for each one of us. And this is how the Apostle Paul, who wrote Ephesians, unpacks this text and writes it. First, The Christian story speaks to my greatest problem, my greatest problem. On the heels of that, we're going to see the Christian story speaks to my deepest longings. And then as it reaches its end crescendo, we're going to see that the Christian story speaks to my highest aspirations, my greatest problem, my deepest longings, and my highest aspirations. 
Now notice in verses 1 to 3 how Paul unpacks our greatest problem, my problem and your problem. Hear God's word. Paul writes, And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like all the rest of mankind. Now, isn't it amazing that against the brilliant backdrop of chapter 1 and the full big story, Paul presses here into the hopeless and helpless picture of the human condition. Now, we all have problems, right? But Paul is saying that all our problems are mere tributaries of the main source. They all stem from our greatest problem, and that problem he defines as sin. So what is sin? I mean, sin is not a word we use every day. It's not the most common word. But it has a very profound meaning. It is a comprehensive word that captures the height, depth, and breadth of the human condition, the broken human condition. Now, whether we use the word sin or sins or not, whether we are religious or not, every one of us intuitively knows what sin is. Because we sense, don't we, in the very depths of our hearts and minds, we are not as we ought to be. That something is terribly wrong with us and the world, even our bodies. Now, there are many evidences, right, of human goodness and noble human achievements. We are clearly not as bad as we could be. But Paul is saying, you know it, I know it, we're not all we ought to be. So Paul paints with his literary brush three brush strokes that give us a greater picture of our greatest problem, sin. You'll notice in the text that first he says sin permeates our daily lives. It, it touches all aspects of life, our thoughts, our attitudes, our motivations, our desires, our words, and behaviors. And we know this because he plucks from the Old Testament a comprehensive word called walk. It's a very rich word in the Old Testament. And he says here, we walk in our transgressions. It is a way of life. It is all of life. It permeates every aspect of our being. It is comprehensive. The word transgression attached to walked specifically describes that aspect of the human condition that deals with willful disobedience or willful violation of God's design. Right? We all have that. It's, it's knowing what we're supposed to do, knowing it, but not doing it. It's knowing better, but doing it anyway. All of us have this experience. As toddlers, we really see this, don't we? Just changes as we get a little older. Same thing as toddler. Our daughter, Sarah, she's grown up to be a marvelous uh, young lady. But she had this thing, this obsession with our stereo. I mean, the lights and sounds and buttons. And after a while, Liz just said, Sarah, this is off limits. You know, you're going to get hurt. Something's going to happen. So the stereo was placed off limits for Sarah. Well, you probably can guess what happened. <laughs> One particular morning, don't look so smug, you do this too, right? 
Liz noticed Sarah inching closer and closer to the stereo. Liz is in the kitchen watching. Sarah catches her eye. They're looking at, they stare each other down, right? And uh, Sarah looks at her mom and then puts her right hand on the stereo, right there. Just like that. Big smile, chocolate brown eyes. Liz looks back at Sarah and says, no, Sarah. And gently goes over and moves her right hand off the stereo. Sarah looks at Liz after her hand has been pulled off the stereo. She says, no, Mommy. And with that, Sarah puts her left hand on the stereo. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying, when it comes to honoring God's design, his boundaries in Holy Scripture, we're just like that. See, we may not be pushing buttons on a stereo. That might not be our problem here this morning. But we may be pushing the buttons of other people around us with injurious words. We may be pushing the moral envelope, ignoring God's design and financial honesty and integrity or sexual purity. It's all too easy for each one of us to take a divine thou shalt not and make it a human I surely will. To somehow convince ourselves that this surely doesn't matter. Sin is willful disobedience to God. But notice where it stems from. Notice the logical progression of the text. Paul says sin secondly stems from our rebellion against God. Notice in verse 2 that rather than obey God, we align our affections, our loyalties, our bodies to the prince of the power of the air. Like, what is that? No, who is that? This is a description of Satan. And whether we are aware of it or not, when we sin, sin plants our loyalty flag in enemy territory. See, with hard affections and attitudes and loyalties, we join the ranks of the cosmic rebellion of old. Now, I don't know if anybody here is a Trekkie fan, but this summer, Liz and I, Liz is a Trekkie fan, and uh, we saw the latest Star Trek film. I'm sure some of you have already seen it. Star Trek Beyond. Amazing. And like all Star Trek movies, I'm not going to tell you all about it or I'll get lots of emails, so I'll try to be discreet. There's a lot of high-tech drama. And each episode, the drama gets more amazing with technology, but it's always the same thing. The good guys of the Starship Enterprise fight some very, very bad, bad, bad guys. And in this case, I don't know what it is. The bad guys get badder. Hideous. Star Trek Beyond, we're introduced to a character named Crawl. <laughs> you got to see it to believe this guy. He is bad plus. I mean, he's like bad on steroids. And what we find out later in the story, I'm not going to tell you all the details, I'm just going to tell you this, you probably expect this, that Crawl has an interesting history. Once upon a time, he was actually a good soldier in the Federation. Hmm. Now I'm not going to say more, but I do have the hunch that if the Apostle Paul was physically here right now, he'd be a Trekkie fan. Because that's really what he's writing. 
It's not an imaginary cosmic struggle. It's a very real one he's referring to. We cannot miss it. The forces of evil in the world led by Satan, who Paul describes from an Old Testament phrase, the prince of the power of the air. The Old Testament is Ben Shakar, son of the morning. Is a crawl-like figure. That's the picture. Who in eternity past rebelled against God and is hell-bent on doing as much damage and destruction as possible to this world that God loves, to the people he made in his image, and to the church of Jesus Christ, his bride. Hell's greatest fury is aimed at the local church. He hates it more than anything else because Jesus loves it more than anything else. Jesus knew well Satan's hellish fury. He describes him in different ways. You see it through the Bible, this evil person, powerful evil person, but Jesus describes him as a thief who wreaks havoc on the earth, who kills and steals and destroys. And let's not forget that stealth technology is not new. Satan has always had an extraordinary ability to be stealth. Satan is more than happy when we believe he doesn't really exist. Satan is not imaginary. The depths of sin in your heart and mine, the depths of suffering and evil in the world are unexplainable apart from the evil one's hateful, deceptive, and destructive presence in the world. That's the only way we can make any sense of the unconscionable evil we see. Third notice, that sin is a corrupted nature we possess. It's not just permeate everything. It's not just rebellion. It's a corrupted nature. It's not just that we sin. We are sin. And notice in verse 3 how Paul describes our disordered desires and affections as coming from a corrupted nature. Do you see that? Both in body and mind. We are capable of the most heinous or heinous evil, and worthy of the most severe judgment by a holy and righteous God. This week when I heard a news report, my eyes flooded with tears. I don't know if you heard it and followed this, but Jacob Wetterling disappeared 27 years ago in a rural country road very close to where I grew up in Minnesota, 27 years ago. Riding his bike on a rural road in Minnesota, he was abducted and 27 years had passed. All the task force, all the police force, until this week. When a 55-year-old, unremorseful Danny Heinrich took law enforcement officers to Jacob's shallow grave and confessed to his heinous crime. The unmasking of such evil chills us on every dimension of society, even on 9-11. As I watched the news report, I couldn't help but think of Jeremiah 79. Jeremiah said, the heart, the human heart is deceitful beyond all else. Who can fathom it? And yet the inconvenient truth is not true that the deepest recesses of my heart and your heart, there's a bit of Danny Heinrich in each one of us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Soviet dissident, in his brilliant book, The Gulag Archipelago, hits it right on the head. And he writes, if only it were only so simple. 
If only, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the dividing line or the dividing good and evil cuts through the line of every heart of every human being. And then he raises the question, who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Paul is saying, friends, that sin is a big, big problem. We all have. So much so, he describes it, that the consequence is like being the walking dead, like think zombie. Paul uses the word dead here, not describing physical death per se, although sin has led to physical death. His idea here is that sin is not only a strained relationship with God, our creator, it is a completely alienated relationship with God, our creator. And hear me carefully, Paul is saying, if our relationship with God is not right, nothing else in our life will ever be fully right. That's why the greatest problem has to have the greatest solution. No amount of education, as good as it is and as important as it is, no amount of compassion or sacrifice, no amount of religion, as noble as it might be, can ever restore our relationship with God. Only the Christian story addresses our greatest peril. Only. That's why there's hope here like nowhere else. Christian story speaks to our greatest problem. We know we are not who we ought to be. But the Christian story speaks, secondly, to our deepest longings. To truly be who we long to be. Who we ought to be. Like Humpty Dumpty, you had a great fall. We all know we had a great fall. All of us. Pastors included, all of us. We know we're broken people. And how we long in those quiet moments, how we long to be put back together again, don't we? How we long to be whole again, to be unshackled from the slavery to sin, to experience the very depths of our being in our daily life, a restored, intimate relationship with God and the beautiful life we were originally designed to live in this world. We long to be made new. We long to be truly known, to truly know, to be truly loved and cherished, to be truly safe. We long for hope. And we can define hope many ways, but fundamentally, personally, experientially, existentially, it is simply a sense of safety and well-being, a sense of confidence that a good future awaits us. And we search for this in many ways, intimate relationships, financial security, careers, success, politics, or government. And these are good things, but we don't find ultimate hope there. They set us up. Hope is elusive beyond our grasp in those quests of the heart. So is there hope for a longing heart? Yes. Paul now gives us the most hopeful news imaginable that we can be, that I, that you, that we can be made new again. We can be whole again. Our greatest problem, our deepest longings become God's greatest opportunity and God's greatest solutions. Look with me at verses four and five. But God, isn't that an amazing two words? But God, notice the contrast, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace, his gift, unmerited gift, you have been saved. Isn't it remarkable? Against such a dark backdrop, in the first verses of Ephesians 2, there is this brilliant light of God's love and hope that bursts forth from the apostle's pen. We are in the miry quicksand, grasping for air, grasping for hope, lost, broken, but our loving God reaches down to us with his nail-scarred hands, and he doesn't abandon us there. He gives us an opportunity to be brought back to how we were designed, to be rescued. God didn't abandon us. He certainly could have. God sends his son Jesus to shed his innocent blood on a Roman cross and pay the penalty for our sin and our sins. So that as a gracious gift, we can experience forgiveness from sin and move from death to life. Notice the three phrases, to be made alive with him, to be raised with him, to be seated with him. Do you see that? What a glorious life Jesus offers us. Do you realize that the same loving power that spoke the universe into existence is the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. It's the same power needed and required to transform a human heart because it is deceitful beyond all else. Who can understand it? That's the good news. The same power that re resurrected Jesus from the dead not only guarantees future life for those who follow him, but gives us the confidence that we can have a human heart change and be made new. Not just again after we physically die, but now. The good news of the gospel is not about making bad people better or good people great. It's about making spiritually dead people spiritually alive again. That's why there's hope here. The story speaks, the greatest story to our greatest problem, our deepest longings, and notice how he ends, our highest aspirations. It's amazing. Because of Christ, his sacrificial death and death-defeating resurrection means I can now be who I ought to be. And I will one day fully be who I ought to be in the new heavens and new earth. Notice verses 6 through 10. What glorious truth. And God, it's just like hope just pours out of this. And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What glorious news. Forgiveness from our sins as well as experience a brand new life is available to each one of us. It is nothing we earn, we can earn. It's a gift of grace made possible by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's not about what we do or what we have done, but what Jesus has done for us. This gift of forgiveness and new life is available to you right now and to me when we repent. That is, when we agree with God that we are broken and desperately needy and we place our trust only in Jesus. The good news of the gospel means that each of us can be fully human again. 
We hear a lot about human flourishing today, but apart from the gospel, no one can fully be a, a human that flourishes in every dimension of life. Human flourishing is impossible without gospel transformation. We can love and live as we are meant to love and live in the dawn of creation before sin and death wreak such havoc in the world is what Paul is saying. One day yet future, yes, we will live in a new heaven, a new earth. A glorious destiny is ours and it awaits us in the future. But the focus of this text ends not in the future but the now. The good news of the gospel, yes, gives us great confidence after we die. But it gives us incredible hope and power to live now well. And the highest aspirations of our life is not just a future ticket to heaven. It is to live life as we were designed to live now in all of life. That's how powerful the gospel is. In our workplaces, in school this week, in starting businesses and keeping businesses going and serving others and loving our neighbors, in our relationships, in our creativity and innovation. Notice how Paul finishes this text. It is the literary crescendo in verse 10. Not only does Paul scale the highest heights of the future for the follower of Jesus, he now emphasizes the importance of the daily work we do every day. Paul's use of the word work is really important to understand here. This word is not just good works as we think of charity or good things like spiritual disciplines. This word is comprehensive. He's saying that the greatest good works is doing good work every day. We must not miss this. Paul is not just saying what we've been saved from. He's, been, he's saying what we are saved for. And that is in our schoolwork, in our work, in everyday life, that we live a radically different life for Jesus Christ. That life changes us. When we trust the gospel, we have new eyes, we have a new heart, we work differently, we see differently, we live differently. Whether that's homework at school, waiting in a pickup line, serving a customer, helping a client, or running a company, Paul will say, using the same language, he will say to the Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, that's what it means to walk in good works. Whatever you do, that includes everything in life. He says, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he says, whatever you do, well, work, word, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That's why at Christ's community we spend so much time talking about faithfulness of vocational stewardship, why we connect Sunday worship with Monday work. The gospel rescues us from enslavement to sin, but it empowers us to live this life well and to work well, whether we are paid for it or not. The gospel profoundly changes the way we work. Dorothy Sayers, a brilliant Brit, said it this way, the only Christian work is good work well done. The gospel profoundly transforms our daily life. So why the church? That's a big question. And as we're going to see this week and the next two weeks because the Christian story is the best story. And Paul says here, the Christian story speaks to my greatest problem, my deepest longings of my heart, and to every generation's highest aspirations. That is, true hope is here. And let me say this, and do not miss this, the quality and degree of the hope you will experience in your life and death is determined by the story in which you find yourself. So is the Christian story your story? This summer we said goodbye to a dear friend of Christ's community and member. Tim had a bright mind as a professor, a tender heart. 
And the Christian story was the story Tim embraced. And the song he chose for his memorial service we did right here is entitled, My Story. Listen to some of the words. If I told you my story, you would hear hope that wouldn't let me go. And if I told you my story, you would hear life, but it wasn't mine. If I should speak, then let it be of the grace that is greater than all my sin. Of when justice was served and where mercy went. Oh, the kindness of Jesus that draws me in. Oh, to tell you my story is to tell of him. Is the Christian story your story? Kristen, one of our newest members at Christ Community, shares how she has embraced this Christian story and how she has found hope here. Watch. I didn't go to church a lot as a kid. It was just my mother who went to church on occasion, um, but she always believed in Jesus, would always pray with us. So I did believe in him, um, but I didn't know what it meant to truly believe in him and to follow him. On November 3rd, 2015, um, my two-month-old father uh, went to work and decided he wasn't going to come home. I wanted to lay in bed till I died. I didn't know what to do. I had no job. Um, was going to be a stay-at-home mom. I just, re I just reached a point of knowing that everything I ever do did in my life to make me feel happy or have this wonderful life was so wrong. My family came to me, my brother especially, and said, why don't you just come to church with us today? So I came, I, th I think I might have even been in my sweat still. And uh, I just came and I just cried the whole service. But it wasn't until this where I, I had nowhere else to go that I realized what it really meant to surrender everything else and really listen and know that his way is better. He saved me in that moment of not only a place to live, but of a actual hope that I can do this. Um, I know it was a one-time help, but it, it changed everything. It, it, it flipped a coin for me that said that I could do this. And, um, and I've been here since. I found hope at Christ Community just because with everything around me that seemed so horrible and scary and different, I, I wasn't scared. I didn't know what a happy life would look like, but I knew what it felt like. Um, one of the things that I found here at Christ Community is that I look forward to it, um, that it brings me back down to earth. And even though I've had a crazy week or sometimes even a crazy morning before I got here, as soon as I get here, a lot of times whatever is being preached on that day is what exactly I was going through. And especially in the beginning, it seemed like every single week something I was pondering or thinking about, the answer was kind of shoved in my face. And I figured if I'm gonna do anything with my life, I've got to learn to follow and listen and not try to fix it myself. 
Church is a place to be yourself. Church is a place to find help. Church is a place to find someone to help. I'm just so thankful for this church. It gives me hope. So the question for all of us, I think, as you hear Kristen share, is that have we found this hope? Have you embraced the story, the greatest story ever told? And Jesus offers it to all of us. I think that's a really important part of this whole morning. I don't know where you are, where God has you, what's going on in your life, but I do know the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel. It's good news. There's hope here. And Jesus simply offers us the life we long to live, the life we were created to live, and he offers it to us as a gift of grace if we humbly bow before him and repent of our sin and trust him, take, take him by faith. And he can meet us exactly where we are and meet every need we have. So do you know Christ this morning? Have you, have you embraced his story? Uh, there's hope in this story. And there is hope ultimately nowhere else. Many of you, I'm sure, have already embraced this hope. And you would say, my story is his story. His story is my story. So I also have a question for us as the church family. Are you sharing the hope? Apostle Paul profoundly describes this in a letter to the Romans. He says, I am eager. I'm under obligation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I want to share this good news with everyone. So why the church? Right? Why the church? Because the local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world. We have the greatest story to share, the most transforming story, the place where true hope is found. And will we share it with others? What a privilege, what a joy, what an opportunity. And Paul will say, how will others hear the good news unless we share it? And how will others experience the fullness of Jesus unless we invite them to be part of a local church family because God designed the local church not only to be a place where we encounter grace, it's where we live it out together and grow spiritually. Without a vibrant local church, we can't grow to maturity in Christ. God designed us for that purpose. So this is what our Reach KC initiative is about. It's really about the gospel. It's really about sharing the good news. It's not primarily about running out of room for people who are already here. It's about making room for people across our campuses who are not here yet. Because true hope is found in the true hope of the world. The local church as God designed it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the graceful message that is filled with truth the most hopeful message imaginable. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak into the crevasses of every human heart, every longing, every desire, every hurt, every disillusionment, and that you would meet each person right where they are this morning. May they encounter joy and hope as they embrace Christ in all his fullness. Father, as a church, we pray that we would be responsive to the Spirit's leading 
and that we'd be people who live the good news and embrace the good news and welcome others to experience the greatest news imaginable and the greatest story ever told. We pray this in Jesus' name.